0: Hello everybody, this is your host, Steve Dawson. Welcome to the One Life Podcast, Season One, featuring Jim Burns, brought to you by music makers and soul shakers. This podcast is completely ad-free and listener-supported. Please check out all of our episodes at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And if you enjoy what we do and would like to support it, you can make a one-time donation or subscribe to our Patreon page. Just follow the donate button on the top right of makersandshakerspodcast.com. Now, just a reminder that what you're about to hear is unscripted on all counts. Jim Burns is speaking off the top of his head, and all musicians are improvising at all times. This was all performed live over two days at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver, and was recorded there by Sheldon Zaharko, and mixed by Steve Dawson in Nashville, Tennessee. Guitars and pedal steel by Steve Dawson, drums and percussion by Gary Craig, bass and mandolin by Jeremy Holmes, and keyboards by Chris Jestrin. I'd just like to thank Jim Burns for agreeing to do a crazy project like this. And without further ado, here is Episode 7 of One Life, Season 1 with Jim Burns.
1: 86 was over. What a year, man. That was insane. <laughs> really, that close to 300 uh, shows and all over the world. And, you know, all the madness down at the uh, expo site and the people I got to work with. And that was an exciting time. But uh, my new year was rolling around. And uh, I hadn't. we hadn't been on a vacation in quite a while, you know. Oh, we'd take a couple little trips where we go over to Victoria or over to Seattle or Never very far away, but I thought, well, after all this, I had some money in the bank and uh, it's going to take some time. So I took a trip down to see some friends in uh, the Bay Area and the Monterey Peninsula and down to Mexico. But, you know, after all this, playing all this music, there was this thing at the back of my mind. You know, I had started out really as a kid wanting to be an actor stage in the films and it was something that just uh, ate at me it was always in the back of my mind in fact when I was living on the island just before I had my accident we had planned to uh, there was a community hall the Arrington community hall we were going to try to take that over I had a friend of mine he was also involved and had been involved in some theater and we were going to put on a uh, try to put on a play you know we were thinking about doing the glass menagerie Tennessee Williams, which takes place in St. Louis, and I had a lot of big plans for that, and then the accident happened, and here it was uh, 15 years later. Uh, I had gone, during the you know, the time of playing music and going in, I, we used to sing jingles, did a lot of commercials back in the day when, when jingles were, the, were a thing, and in the midst of that, I ended up getting some voiceover work, uh, voicing the commercials as well. So I had uh, had spoken to, uh, I had a person who was kind of working as an agent to get me those gigs. And at their agency, there was also a woman who represented actors. Well, I, I had gone in a year or so before and said, you know, talked about my background in theater and this, that, and the other thing. And uh, so she kind of, uh, Marie Morton was her name, wonderful woman. She's gone now, but, uh, you know, I, she gave me my career. <laughs> But uh, we, she, so, you know, we kind of signed. I was on the roster and, uh, oh, we'd go out for a couple of things, but it was always the same story. You know, they would ask about uh, why I walked the way I did and carried the cane and all this stuff. And I would explain that, uh, you know, next week I wasn't, it wasn't a sprained ankle and it was not going to go away. And this was the way I got around. And there was a lot of don't call us, we'll call you. Well, fair enough. Now, we had gone down and t- taken this trip uh, down to California and Mexico. And I, we'd been gone for, I don't know, three weeks, almost a month. And then when I got home, uh, checked the uh, messages. And there was a message from the agency saying that uh, th- uh, there was an audition for uh, a part on a show. And uh, would I show up at a certain time? It was the next day. And uh, so I had no time to prepare or anything. I don't know what the heck. I just, you know... It was just a, a good experience. So I went down there, and this was a, a show that was, uh, apparently, I, as I found out a little bit more, was a pilot for a, for a television series for CBS Network. And um, and then, gee, it was uh, Steve Cannell, you know, the guy who had, had the A-Team and a bunch of other shows. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. And uh, I, I really didn't know much about it, but uh, it said the brief description of the character, what he was... Uh, a guy with long hair, and he was in a wheelchair. And I thought, well, okay, I think I can do this. And I went in with absolutely no no preparation. I had not seen the script until I got there and picked up the pages at the at the audition room. Now, auditioning is uh, a <laughs> it's really it's it's an awful, you know, it's terrible. Guys, you know, they spend their lives uh, just. Prepping and thinking of this, and you go and you'll you'll be in there. Be a, a lineup of fifteen people, and uh, it's like being in a mental hospital or something. Everybody's talking to themselves and making faces and walking up and down the hallway, and the uh, the nerves and stuff. But I went in with no expectation. This was just gonna hey, this is fun. I you know I'm back from this vacation. I was rested, and uh, so we walked in, and the uh, the producer was there. The executive, one of the executive producers, not Steve Cannon, wasn't there, but a guy named Les Sheldon, who I. Found out later was uh, had quite a track record in the the film and television business, and um, and the fellow was going to direct and somebody to read with, and I just went in there, you know, uh, laughing and grinning, and uh, read through the stuff, and I had you know had a bit of a conversation with the uh, with the producer and the and the director, and felt pretty good, you know. I walked out, I didn't feel like I had screwed up or. I thought, yeah, I, I gave them what I gave them what I had. And hopefully, they'll find something. I, you know, I went in with no expectations really. Later that day, I got a phone call and said, "Well, they want to. Can, can you get back downtown? Uh, they want to put you on tape. They want to put you on film so they can send it to the network." Ah, sure, that's cool. You know, I, did. I knew I'd done something right, and so that felt good. I still was not expecting. Didn't know what to make of it. And uh, and then it was just about ten days later. Uh, the agent got a call and uh, said they're very interested in you. We had some questions, this and that and the other thing. So they wrote up a contract. On uh, February the 26th of 1987, I signed this contract to do this television pilot for CBS. Now, coincidentally, or synchronic synchronicity or whatever it was uh, the 26th of February 1972 is when I'd had my accident so it was exactly 15 years to the day that uh, I signed this uh, contract that uh, you know one phone call changes your life on March 17th I think the guys came up and we had some meetings uh, down at the convention center and Wow, the, you know, Steve Cannell was there and uh, the star of our show, a guy named Ken Wall, who I was familiar with from his uh, Ford Apache, the Bronx that he made with Paul Newman, and Ed Asner and uh, his film The Wanderers, and uh, who else was there? Uh, Jonathan Banks, uh, who had, both these guys had become two very close friends. We, made, we had some good... And Jonathan, of course, had been in uh, 48 hours and was one of the bad guys in Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop. Les Sheldon, who had been one of the producers, you know, he—I found out that he had been an executive producer on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and a bunch of other stuff. So all of a sudden, oh man, this is the big time. And Johnny Russo was there. Johnny Russo played uh, was in uh, played Carlo in uh, in The Godfather. You know, the bad uh, who had married the, the sister and you know got himself all that trouble. And anyway, so this was like, I was like, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> this is not just uh, a walk in the park here. And uh, we shot the pilot for Wise Guy. all of a sudden, you know they' shooting a television series, and uh, everybody's nerves were on end because they wanted you know they want this to go to air and wanted it to go to the network. and uh, so there was a, uh, a lot of pressure on, but, uh, but I came in and did my little thing, and everybody seemed very happy with it. And, uh, and then we, uh, we had to wait to see what the, uh, the network was going to say and um, they picked it up. They said we're going to have a series. We're going to start shooting in July, and we're doing uh, 22 episodes. And uh, I was gonna, well. I was I was in all but one of that first se- of that first season. I was in, and uh, the money was pretty good. And all of a sudden, man, I, it was a dream come true. I mean, this just something that I i had to shake my head and think, wow, where did this come from, you know? And I kind of look back. I when we had been down in Mexico. I uh, ran into a guy who was a, a veteran, Vietnam veteran, and uh, he was down there run, running a, he had some guy's fishing boat, and so I went out one day with him fishing. We went out deep sea fishing, and I caught a, uh, well, what they they call him mahi-mahi in, uh, in Hawaii, and down in Mexico they call him, it's a dolphin fish. Anyway, it was a beautiful fish, and it was a beautiful day on the water, and I gave this fish to this uh, kid, uh, Nikki, who was the, the, the deckhand, a Mexican kid who was a deckhand, and I know he took that fish home and probably fed his family for close to a month with with that with that one fish. And I felt really good about that. And in a way, I felt that this was a a blessing that I I had done a good job, a good deed, and somehow it was coming back to me. And so we got into the you know the thing of shooting that first season, and uh, yeah, got to be friends with uh, with everybody. And of course, my the band was working a lot. And, and generally, I, I would only work maybe uh, one day, or sometimes you know two days or a half a day uh, on an episode and then I had the rest of my time to myself and we were playing regularly down at uh, at Hogan's Alley and at the Yale and so I started you know telling the guy and, and, and the people started showing up uh, at the. They, they would come to the gigs and man this guy you know was like hey he really can play he really is a musician not just you know some there are actors that want to be musicians and of course there are musicians that want to be actors and uh I don't want to blow my own horn, but I'm both. <laughs> I can make them both work, and uh, you know. Also, at the time, if uh, the candle was up here shooting our show, Wise Guy, they were also shooting. Uh, 21 Jump Street was up here, and so uh, Johnny Depp started coming down to some of my gigs, and he, you know, he's a guitar player, and we we got to know him one another. He would bring his pals around, and uh, Peter DeLuise, the son of uh, down DeLuise, and who was on the show, and. Uh, it was, it was an exciting time, you know, uh, both in terms of the fact that I had this great acting job and then at the gigs, a lot of people were coming around and I had all these sort of celebs coming down to see me and being fans, and, I, uh, and then I got a couple of uh, offshoot, a couple of little gigs here and there. Uh, Wise Guy, uh, you know, being the big CBS show that it was. That first episode aired a week before my 39th birthday and my mom and dad had come up and uh to sit there in the living room with uh with my wife robin and uh my mom and dad and here I, all of a sudden i was in the credits with jim burns as lifeguard it was a pretty powerful moment I, you know when i think of uh, all the grief that i put my family through and they had always supported me in every way even when i screwed up terribly and uh and there I was, finally, the, the dream come true. Um, it was really something. And that first season, uh, we, we did all the work with, uh, of course, there was uh, the shows with Ray Sharkey, the, uh, the, the Sonny Steelgrave uh, arc, and uh, so many uh, Joe D'Alessandro from the Andy Warhol Bunch was, was episodes, and man, just also working with all this. It was the real thing. It was not, you know, this was not Mickey Mouse, man. We were really, really doing the real thing. And then the, the second part of that season uh this young actor that was uh making his name on our show was a guy kevin spacey and i got to know kevin a little bit a very an, an odd guy very t- t- kept to himself but uh but we had our moments together he was very funny he was a great mimic of people and stuff and we we would often we we didn't have scenes together but uh, we would often end up going to uh uh, do like replacement dialogue, or you know, there'd be a, a, a blip in the soundtrack, and you'd have to go and replace some of your dialogue because of uh, so there was a plane flying over, or somebody dropped a gun, or what, whatever. And uh, so we would, you know, these 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 rides in the car out to the sets and stuff, and got to know him. He and Joan Severance, they played these uh, this crazy brother and sister duo who was uh, anyway, exciting time, and and we had great uh, response, critical response course we were nominated for uh, that season for Golden Globe and the next season we were nominated for Emmy Awards and man this was so big now we waited uh, of course at the end of the season you have to wait to see if you're gonna be picked up so we had gone down to uh, to Los Angeles to uh, to beat the bushes and to be there for the announcement of whether or not CBS was gonna take us on for another season and, and they did, and man, oh man, so here, here we were again, some of the people we got to work with, uh, like I say, Kevin Spacey, uh, our, my, my co-stars, uh, Ken Wall and Jonathan Banks, great actors, great guys. Uh, our second season, Jerry Lewis came in to do uh, some episodes, and uh, you know, working with Jerry, all of a sudden, no matter what you think about him, when you're nine or ten years old, you think he's the funniest guy in the world, and here you are in a room with him, and... Uh, he was, uh, he was very nice to me. He could be, uh, I heard him a couple of times talking to some of his quote unquote people, and he could be pretty rough, you know. In fact, there was a fella that was, uh, the guy named Jack Hogan. he had a, a radio show down in, in Las Vegas, and he was a big fan of our show. And Jack was an old old time showbiz guy. You know, uh, going back to the, the real thing. You know, I mean, he knew Al Jolson. You know, this is old-time show business, and he had this radio show in Las Vegas. And he would phone me up once a week, and then we would talk about the show and what was going on with the show, since he was such a fan of it, and I was a regular feature on his radio show down in Las Vegas. And uh, and then, of course, when he found that when Jerry was coming, he said, "Well, Jerry, this and there I know I've known Jerry for thirty-five years or forty years or whatever." And um, this, that, and the other thing, but you gotta watch him, he's got two sets of teeth, <laughs> like a shark, uh, that was pretty interesting. And then, so, you know, the the show was going on and on, and we would go every year, uh, they would have these, uh, CBS we, we would throw a big party to announce the new season, and uh, who was gonna be on it, and how great the shows were, and how what a wonderful season we were gonna have. And we would all congregate down in, uh, in Century City down in, in uh, Hollywood. Big hotel, big convention, and all the stars of the different shows would come, and Mary Tyler Moore and Candace Bergen, and they would all be there, and uh, and all the affiliates from all over the country, uh, the people who worked at the CBS stations would come, and we would, you know, pump each other up, big kind of pep rally. One story, this is kind of funny, we were uh, Jimmy Dean, you know, the uh, big bad John himself, had done a, uh, a movie of the week for CBS. It was uh, a Western, of course. So we were there, We got I got on the elevator, and it was and Jimmy Dean was on the elevator, and Sheb Woolley, remember the purple people eater? Oh yeah, there he was. But you know, Sheb had a great uh, acting career as well. He played Pete Nolan on Rawhide with uh, Clint Eastwood. And uh, then, of course, there was, uh, he was uh, the bad guy in uh, Those Three Men Waiting on a Train in High Noon. Great actors, Robert J. Wilkie, Lee Van Cleef, and Sheb Woolley uh, waiting for Frank Miller to come uh, from the penitentiary to come into town to seek his revenge. He, uh, Sheb played Ben uh, ben Miller in that, the brother of Frank Miller. So anyway, here I am on the elevator with these two sort of, you know, iconic Western guys. It was pretty cool. Now, you know, at the time, I had hair down to my shoulders and a big full beard and stuff. This is 1988. And uh, Jimmy Dean kind of looked at me uh, disparagingly, let me say. But I said to him, I said, You know, Mr. Dean, I really really like that pork sausage that you make. (laughs) And he looked me up and down again, and he said, You know I like you better than I thought I would. Oh yeah, man. We had those were fun days. I mean, just being a part of that whole thing, and uh, like I say, you know, I went to the Emmy Awards and stuff. And but but I got to tell you, you know, I was thirty-nine years old, forty years old by this time. This stuff was happening, and, I'm, and I and I must say, I'm I think I'm glad that I, I didn't have that kind of success when I was young because it, it would have blown me up. I think. But this time I was a grown up and I'd been, you know. Through the wars and through the mill and everything and so I kind of just take everything in stride and realize you know well people don't realize you know they, they they see the glitz and the glamour and the limousines and all this stuff but it ain't like that I'll tell you the truth it's it's hard work and a lot of uh you know a lot of nonsense that goes on uh and so but I was just so happy you know that uh every week my my folks could see me on tv and uh you know, and finally they could really be proud of me, and this, you know, sort of prodigal son that had done all, made all these mistakes and done the wrong thing, and ran away from home, and you know, got beat up so bad, and, and here I was uh, making a name, and everybody they were so proud of me, and you know, this was a, a very, very important time in my life, and a very uh, rewarding time in my life, and you know, the, the stuff I got introduced to uh, suddenly. I, after that first season, I got more and more voice work and I, was, I, did, uh, I made a load of toys. I started, we started doing cartoons, uh, cartoon voices and we did. I did a number of series over a number of years uh, uh, that I guess a lot of people would recognize from like the Beast Wars and uh, G.I. Joe and uh, there was one we did about, uh, what was it called, King Arthur and the Night. anyway I played Merlin in that. And that was quite fun, and I did commercials, like I was the voice of Arby's for a couple of years. And uh, and then I, you know, like I say, once again, I, I had been doing these, singing these jingles and stuff. So I got a call from one of the locals, you know, the guys that I worked with all the time, and I went in to do a commercial for, uh, it was for Doritos, you know, the corn chips. And uh, so we had gone in and, uh, there, you know, the producers were there, the guys up from the States, and. Uh, we did, and it was sort of a, uh, it was, well, a takeoff on, on a, a Tom Waits uh, piece from his album Nighthawks of the Diner*, Step Right Up, and, you uh, know, it was kind of, it was based on that, okay. So we went in, and on and on, They should, you know, the usual stuff, and can we try that again? Well, that was good, but let's do it again. Could you try it this way? Could you try it that way? And we got to the end. Everybody seemed happy, uh, you know, yeah, okay, cool, this is a good a good situation and uh, I went home and the the check came and that was great you know I've been so here it is uh, and this would have been well uh, late September of uh, well actually it would have been October of 1988 Uh, my daughter Caitlin had been born in September and uh, just three days after my birthday after my 40th birthday my, my daughter Kate was born And uh, we had gone down, this was the first time we had really taken her out. We went out and we went down to Granville Island and did some shopping and this, that and the other. And we got home and we were exhausted. And uh, so I went and kinda go have a bit of a nap before dinner. And there was, the doorbell rang. And I thought, oh man, I just, who can this be? The Jehovah's Witnesses or something? And I was able to peek out the window to see what was there. And it was a fellow that I didn't know. And Tom Waits, yes, that Tom Waits, was standing on our back, on our porch. Now I had met Tom uh, back uh, when man, it moved have been 1975 or something. I was in New York City visiting some friends, and uh, I'd been down in, when I'd been on a, a trip down in Mexico. I met this fellow Bo, who was a Tom's one of Tom's roadies. Anyway, we had run into one another in New York in, in the village in 1975, and so here it is. Uh, you know, 12 years later or whatever, 13 years later, and Tom is standing on my porch. And, what is this about? So I go down and I open the door and the guy goes, hi, I'm uh, Bill Feldman, I'm a, a private uh, investigator from San Francisco. And they, yeah, Tom, wait, please come in, you guys. And sit down, you want a beer or whatever, you know? What is this about? Okay, so it turns out that this, uh, this commercial that I had done for Doritos, based sort of on one of Tom's tunes, To make a long story short, uh, they had taken this uh, to uh, the PepsiCo or whoever it is that, that actually owns that company. You know, they, And one of the uh, execs there said, oh, this is this guy's not, this is not exactly what we wanted. We wanted Tom Waits. So it ends up that they had originally approached Tom about doing this commercial. And Tom said, I don't do commercials. OK, I do not sell my persona. This is me. This is that. And I don't do commercials and uh, so they, he had turned them down. And they were not the only ones he had turned down, but, but in there, you know, so they had this thing, and when the, the guys who produced it for my version you know, thought it was fine, but when they got to the, net, uh, to the big company, there was a, an executive who thought, this is, this is not exactly what I wanted, Tom Waits. And so they had gone to a guy named Stephen Carter, who uh, lives in Austin, Texas, and does a Tom Waits tribute act. And they got him to do it. And Tom had heard this on the radio and flipped out that, you know, some they had gone and, and gotten a sound alike and, and done this whole thing. So they were going to take uh, them to court over, uh, you know, stealing his persona and his work and his, his copyrighted work. And uh, they wanted me. Uh, so we had, we had a big long meeting. We, we had talked about, I talked about the session that, that we had done and uh, how it went, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so they, they wanted me to come down, and in fact I did go down uh, to Los Angeles, appeared in uh, federal court, District Three federal court, in front of a judge and a jury uh, to uh, to hear this case about how they had stolen, you know, they had, they had stolen Tom's persona and work, and they got me up in the stand, and I talked about uh, because their defense was, oh, it's just a, it's just a. a a uh, coincidence that, you know, there's a lot of guys who sound like Louis Armstrong or, you know, got a gravelly voice and you can, you know, they, they were trying to just protect themselves by saying that uh, it just, is, it's a coincidence that it sounded exactly like Tom Waits. Well, anyway, I got on the stand and and talked about all the work I had done and some of the Im- people I had imitated, you know, for commercials, uh, Otis Redding and Louis Armstrong and gravelly voice guys, okay? And uh, so we, and, uh, this being Los Angeles, as opposed to just reading uh, depositions, they had actors come up and sit on the stands. And uh, the fellow Howard King was, the, was our lawyer, and he would, you know, cross-examine them. And they would read these depositions as if they were uh, the record, the commercial producer, or the executive at the uh, at the station who didn't uh, think this uh, didn't meet his standards. So, anyway, long story short. The judge and jury heard all this stuff, and they found in favor of Tom Waits. And Tom was awarded $2.5 million, (laughs) which I'm sure the Howard King lawyer would have gotten a big chunk of that. But so it's, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or so later, I get a package in the mail. uh, A harmonica case, a Marine Band harmonica case, you've all seen them. And um, so, you know, in this package, I opened it up. And I opened it up, and it was like a gravity knife. One of these, you know, L.A. Uh, street gang <laughs> gravity knife. And, and a little handwritten note from Tom Waits saying, Dear Jim, thanks for having me cut through the bull, your pal Tom. <laughs> so it was a pretty exciting time and a pretty... So a lot, a lot, of, neat, a lot of neat stuff was re- really happening. as uh, And this was all at the same time the wise guy stuff was happening. And we were... Oh man, some of the stories I, funny. we were in Chicago for a, uh, we, to go up and visit a friend a friend of ours. It was at Christmas time, and Mom and Dad had come with me and my wife Robin, and I have a really good friend up there in fact, I was part of a, an investor in his restaurant up there in Chicago and um, so we had gone up to spend the, part of the Christmas holidays and we were in um, one of the Tony hotels there on the Gold Coast and, uh, there's in the bar, and, and I, I was uh, my dad. well, i had given my dad my crew jacket, said "wise guy" on the back, and my dad was wearing it. <laughs> and uh, this guy came up and he said, "Oh yeah, I saw that show on TV. You know, yeah, that's pretty good. They they do a pretty good job." He said, "Yeah, I'm under six federal indictments myself right now." In <laughs> <You know, laughs> this bar in Chicago, and this guy said, "Oh yeah, I was out." Uh, my we had a we had a good laugh. <laughs> a really good laugh. Like I say, I'm so I'm so glad that it didn't happen until later in my life because it, it really didn't go to my head. I just realized I've been I've been blessed. I'm so lucky, and I got this job that I love. <laughs> there you go, man. For listening to this episode of One Life. You'll find all the episodes up now for your enjoyment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.